my house, Sukkot is my favorite holiday, not Passover. It's not Passover for a bunch of reasons. One, I'm a foodie, and when you're a foodie, Passover is not that much fun. Two, we have a lot of role distribution in our household. We share a lot of responsibilities. And my job is the kitchen. I'm in charge of cooking. So it's another reason why Pesach isn't my favorite holiday. So as the hours were waning in Pesach, and there was about three hours left of the holiday, my stomach was doing similar things to what it was doing now, and imagining where we're going to go to break this holiday, what kind of pizza we're going to eat, changing the food over, and the bagel that I'm going to have in the morning. So I found it particular and strange when I noticed my cell phone that I keep charged in the kitchen was continuing to ring with a number that I didn't recognize. And each moment it would ring, continue to ring, and I don't answer the phone on the holiday, it would ring and then it would stop. After four rings, it goes into voicemail. A minute later, it happened again, and then again, and then on the home phone, but then on the special home phone line that we keep for congregants. And my instincts told me, after seeing both of those numbers pop up, even though there were still three hours left in the holiday, this was a time when Rabbi Kirshner needed to answer the phone. And I did. And sadly, my instincts were right. It was my congregant Brian Benson on the phone, Amelia Gold's husband, who just read for us. She told me, he told me a very powerful and painful story about his brother-in-law, Jeffrey Silver who wasn't feeling so well, was taken to the hospital just to make sure everything was okay, but unfortunately, it wasn't. He had a very severe stroke. He was a young man, just a few years older than I, his kids at the Solomon Schechter School with my kids, just a few grades above. Saw him in the synagogue pretty regularly, and not a few weeks before, he sat in the chapel with myself, Cantor Singer, Rabbi Susan, and we gave him the date for his son's bar mitzvah. As I could tell on the phone by Brian's voice and the fact that he's a physician, I needed to get to the hospital. I got dressed, and as soon as the sun set, my key turned the ignition in the car. There, I saw fellow congregants and family of Brian, Sandra Gold, Arnold Gold, Amelia, Dara, all of the family were gathered. And there was Jeffrey, lots of tubes hooked up to his body, in a comatose state, and all of us in tears. It was one of those things that you train for in rabbinical school and to be honest with you, in 11 years, I never faced it before. Thank God. And I hope it's at least 11, if not more, till I ever face it again. A family standing by with their husband, a father, a brother and brother-in-law, and a child. And realizing that because of the act of God beyond our control, he was going to die. The family... It's a family that's been intensely involved 
and the medical world. The Gold Foundation has dedicated their work to the idea of compassion and kindness and looking after others. So they're familiar with these things, but never prepared, never aware when it hits home. And I don't know how one can be prepared when someone from the hospital comes up to you and says, we want to talk to you about organ donation. What a statement. We want to talk to you about organ donation. Because you understand in that statement the finality of the love and the life that you have come there for. It's clear. It's clear where the limitations of medicine run out. And then you have to make serious decisions, ethical decisions, religious decisions, decisions in our hearts and in our souls about what you're going to do and how you're going to make a difference. We sat together at the end of the hallway, just outside the door where Jeffrey was. And the family had all felt in their heart unanimously that the limitations of medicine had reached them and they wanted to make a difference in the world because that's the way Jeffrey had lived. And he would want to offer his organs to help another life. And they asked me, Rabbi, what does the Torah say? What are we supposed to do? At this point, it almost doesn't matter what the Torah says. The Torah is a guide for us when we don't know what to do. But in this case, our hearts and our instincts were telling us exactly what the Torah was telling us. The Torah tells us the most important thing we have in our tradition is pikuach mefesh, to save a life. How many people have come up to me all the time and say, Rabbi, my uncle just had surgery, I just had a procedure, this has happened, I don't know if I should fast, I want to fast, I shouldn't fast, and what do I say to them every time? Eat. It's much more important for you to eat than it is for you to get sick. There's a famous Rebbe by the name of the Brisker Rebbe. And everyone would come up to the Brisker Rebbe on Yom Kippur and say, Rabbi, I'm a little hungry. He'd say, go eat something. Go eat something. Next one would say, Rabbi, my toe hurts. I don't know. What to... Go eat something. <laughs> Rabbi, you know, I'm sitting, you know, I'm a little tight. Go eat something, he would say. One of the students came up to the Brisker Rebbe. He says, Rebbe, I love you. You teach us Torah all the time. How can you be so relaxed, though, on Yom Kippur? It's the holiest day of the year. It's a serious fast, and you're so relaxed, you tell everyone to go eat. And the Rebbe says to him, no. You think I'm relaxed on the issues of Yom Kippur. I'm not. I'm a mockpeed. I'm very exact. I'm very exact on the laws of Pikuach Nefesh, on the laws of saving a life. Don't see me as relaxed on Yom Kippur. See me as serious when it comes to the issue of saving a life. That's what the Torah tells us. The Torah tells us our responsibility is to save a life. So I shared with Sandra and Arnold and Dara, Amelia and Brian and all of the family that were there, Stephen, Maggie. I told them the story of an ultra-Orthodox Haredi leader in the old city of Jerusalem who oversees the yeshiva who spends his day studying texts and telling others how we should live our lives. And he came out with the writing. And when these rabbis come out with writings, they don't come out with ambiguous, ambiguous writings. They come out telling you exactly what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to feel. They don't leave emotions up to anyone else. 
And even this ultra-right-wing Haredi rabbi that tells us, in most traditions, that we shouldn't do anything to hurt our bodies or desecrate our bodies or anything after our bodies after we've died, this right-wing, far-off-the-charts rabbi tells us that it's not a case of whether we should or we shouldn't donate organs when given the opportunity. We actually are required to. And that when we don't, it's tantamount to murder. When we don't, it's tantamount to murder. And he's telling this for the entire ultra-Orthodox community. That when the machines were turned off. I'm going to be very personal with you for a moment and tell you that it was the hardest day of my rabbinate. In my job as a rabbi, it was the hardest day I ever had. And in some ways, it was so hard because I didn't know how to calibrate my emotions. When they turned off the machines and nature took its course, it happened downstairs in an operating room. Some members of the family decided to scrub up and to be with their brother and their son. Husband and loved one at that moment it was a holy moment. And the family had asked for Kanner Singer and I to be there too. Kanner Singer sang, and it was was a watershed moment for me about not only the blessing we have in our cancer, which we all should know by now, but it was a watershed moment for me about the power of song in a moment of need and how much comfort and solace and hope it can offer and how inspiring our cantor was at that hour. But the part that struck at my cord the hardest was just outside that operating room were three other families who didn't know each other, didn't understand why they were sitting there, tears of hope, of nervousness, of frustration, streaming down their eyes. And as we walked into that operating room where nature was taking its course, we could see three other operating rooms at that very moment preparing. Preparing for what was going to be the harvesting of organs for what was a moment in Judaism of requirement and law, what was someone's final act in choosing to give life, someone who was understanding the letter of the law and at the exact same time executing on the spirit of the law. And it's something we just don't see every day. And as one life was leaving this world, three other lives were receiving new leases and new opportunities, someone waiting for lungs, someone waiting for a liver, someone waiting for kidneys, all getting a new opportunity in the moment of incredible sadness while other hopes were lost. I'm still digesting those moments. I imagine I'll work through them for many, many years. But for me, a kid who grew up in a rabbi's house, who's native to prayer, native to Jewish education, a day school product, native to our tradition. It was the first time in 36 years I understood what it meant when we say the words in our prayers, who bring the dead back to life. The first time ever. It was about someone taking an opportunity, an incredible sadness, an incredible pain, with heart-wrenching choices, and making an opportunity for others. 
And that's why I decided, with Arnold and Sandra and Dara's permission today, to share the story with you. To share the story with you about what the Mishnah teaches us. If someone's walking to shul and they see a house of rubble that was standing hours earlier, and it's Yom Kippur Day, and they leave the congregation, if they don't come to shul, the congregation won't have anyone to lead them. Can they go into the house to look for survivors? And the Mishnah explicitly states, absolutely. So what we don't pray? If you save one life, so what? You've done your job of Yom Kippur. With Sandra, Arnold, and Dara and their families in premature, I decided to take this moment and talk to you about not only the loss of an incredible individual in Jeffrey, who was in this room just a few weeks before his death, dancing as we honored his parents with Dara. They were on that dance floor and celebrating and dancing, whether they were the only ones up there or there were a hundred other people up there. They were cutting a rug. We mourn his loss and we'll never be able to replace it. Never. But the choice of the way he lived his life and the choice of his family to decide because of the tragedy that happened upon them, to afford life to others, is not only a moral principle, is not only an ethical principle, it's not only a social imperative, it's a Jewish commandment. And it's something we should all know. Some of you might have grown up in an era where we weren't allowed to check that off on our license because Judaism said we couldn't. It's true. But a lot of things have changed since that time. Helicopters transport organs from one place to another. Medicine has advanced to a place where we can find different donors and different matches where 30, 40 years ago it was so much more rare. Today, the statistics of offering these organs in elongating life have increased dramatically. It's a responsibility for us as we think about the entire liturgy of Yom Kippur. We think about the idea of Unatanatokov, of who will live and who will die. Of the days and not knowing when it's a typical Tuesday and when our world will come crashing in on a Thursday afternoon when someone's planning to turn their house back over for Pesach. It's our responsibility to realize not only do we have an opportunity in encouraging others when faced with this tragedy, to donate their organs, but we can too. It's a conversation we should be having with our loved ones, with our children, with our parents, with our spouses. It's not an easy conversation to have, but the idea of a living will, where God forbid this could happen to any of us, and these choices can be made, that one more person in here, God forbid, is faced with a situation and knows what our ethics tell us to do and what Judaism tells us to do could save that same life just like for walking by a house that's full of rubble and we don't know if it's inside. These are our responsibilities. At East Core, we come to remember. We come to remember those who are gone. But at East Core, at the same time, we think about ways of incorporating them back into our lives. Through a smile, through a characteristic, through a trait, through an activity. This one is a lot harder to talk about, but it's something that's important to us.
As the Chazan leads us in the 23rd Psalm of Mizmor Le David, we don't only take a moment of pause to remember the loss of a life that left us too early in Jeffrey Silver, of the sadness of his wife, his children, his parents, his siblings, but we also take a moment and realize the gift of life that he gave, the blessing that he taught us, which was emblematic of the way that he lived every day, a reminder to us of what it means when we say, what it means when we thank God who brings the dead back to life. Because when we say those prayers now, it gives us a new perspective, a new understanding, a new way. May the blessing of Jeffrey always serve as an inspiration. And may the life he gave to those three people in those operating rooms across the hall, to all of us through inspiration, continue to be blessed and with health. Amen.